0: Good to see you back tonight. We'll be in Romans chapter 13 again. Romans chapter 13. We'll be moving on from our discussion of government that we were on this morning. But you know, I don't know if I'm the only one struggling with the time change. Oh, Tim, it's getting you... It's about bedtime, isn't it? And... Um, you know, I, I don't. it didn't seem to affect me this much last year. Maybe I just don't remember. But uh, the time change is getting me. You know, I was standing outside about 3 o'clock this afternoon, and I just could have sworn it was 530. You know, it was about time to come to church, I thought. But, you know, time impacts our actions. Uh, you know, it affects everybody differently. You know, for me and Tim, you start getting dark outside, we start looking for the pillow, you know. I mean, that's just the way it is. It's about the time Brother Eric's putting a pot of coffee on, and uh, you got a night, owl, a night owl, and then I like to say I'm a morning person, you know, get up, get going, but when it gets dark, it's time to go to bed. Time affects us all differently, and I think that's even evident is, you know, you meet some folks who are 50, and you'd... You just think by the way they act, they've got to be at least 90 or 100, you know, and then you meet some folks who are 90 or 100 and you think they're not a day over 40 the way they act, you know, it's just time affects us all differently. But what we've been looking at last Sunday and again to this morning, we've been looking at our behavior as Christians and how we ought to act. And tonight we're going to see, as we wrap up this discussion, that for Christians, time ought to affect Our behavior, that's what we'll read in our text as we wrap up Romans chapter 13 tonight. But as far as our behavior is concerned as Christians, time, the way Paul's talking about it, ought to affect us all the same way. So read with me in Romans chapter 13, picking up where we left off this morning in verse 8. Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 8. Paul says this, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying. Namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Let's pray together tonight. Father, thank you so much that you love us enough that you wrote us a book, a love letter to us telling us what the best way is to live so that we can experience life at its best. And I pray that those of us who have heard your word, myself included, That we will be changed by your word, that we will be drawn closer to you, and that we will behave in a way that brings honor and glory to you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We started in verse 8 tonight for context, but we're not going to dwell too long on those first several verses because I think we've covered that concept uh, very thoroughly lately in those verse 8 through 10 where he says, Love is the fulfillment of the law. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second greatest is to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said those two things fulfill all the law. So we got that down. We know what that means. We'll say it one more time. The best thing we can do as Christians is love one another, okay? You got that. You're going to pass that part of the test. We're going to move on. That brings us to the lesson for tonight Paul said, love one another, but look at how he starts verse 8. He says, and do this. Love one another. See, that's for other people. We've talked about how our behavior affects our relationship with God. They're the first We said that's what the first part of Romans 12 was about. Then how our behavior affects uh, our relationship with God. With others, we talked about that last Sunday morning and last Sunday night this morning. We talked about how our behavior ought to affect our relationship with the government and how we ought to behave in relation to that. But now we really get around to how our behavior affects us in a lot of ways. So he says, love others. That fulfills the law as it relates to how you're supposed to relate to God and to other people. And do this. Know the time. That's the first thing he says, know the time. Now, because, of course, the Bible wasn't written in English, uh, we see something like that, know the time, and you think, well, I don't know what time Paul wrote this, but right now it's about 614, you know? And he said, well, that's not what Paul's talking about. You know, we get back uh, to to the Greek that that this was uh, originally written in, and we, we find out that this word time does not come from chronos, which means chronological time, like it's 614, or maybe by now it's 615, It comes. this word uh, comes from a Greek word, "kairos." if I said that right, which means an age or an era. Kind of like you say, in the times of the dinosaur. You know? You're not talking about a time or even a date. You're talking about a span of time. Or we might say, as we're uh, doing a Bible study, you say, this happened back in the Bible times. We're talking about an era of time. But this can also mean something else. And this is what I really believe Paul is getting at. This can mean an opportune time. That's another thing that this word can mean. An opportune time. Paul says, know that this this period of time in which you live, your lifetime, is an opportune time. What time is it? He, said, he tells us that as we look in verse 11. And now it is high time to awake out of sleep. It's time to awake out of sleep. That's what the Apostle Paul said. And we get in, now. That's, hey, there's folks in the room that don't like to hear that. It's time to wake up. I live with one of those, you know? And I'm not telling you which of them it is. Because I'm a lot smarter than I look. But here's the thing. Paul says it's time to wake up. He's not talking about physical sleep. Paul is using sleep to provide a metaphor about how a lot of folks phys- I mean, spiritual lives appear. Now, I looked up to see what Webster said about sleep. Now Webster, you know, I mean, Webster's no uh, biblical scholar, but to define sleep as in our physical sleep, uh, Webster says it's the natural, easily reversible, periodic state of many living things that is marked by the absence of wakefulness and by the loss of consciousness of one's surroundings and is accompanied by a typical body posture, such as lying down with the eyes closed, the occurrence of daydreaming and changes in brain activity and physiological functioning. Who would have ever imagined that sleep had such a long definition? But there's a lot that goes into sleep. And the translators who translated our Bible from the Greek into the English thought that this word sleep best fit what Paul was saying. He said they're spiritually asleep. There's a lot of Christians in Paul's day as he's writing to the Romans, they're spiritually asleep. Spiritually, they don't know what's going on around them. They're living their life and they don't have a clue as to the spiritual things happening around them. Spiritually, they're just daydreaming. You know? Spiritually, their brain activity, their spiritual brain activity is not where it needs to be. As we look around and examine the state of Christianity today, I I wasn't around in Paul's time, of course, so I don't know exactly what the state was, but I I think it's worse today, probably. I think there's a lot more so-called Christians who are spiritually asleep today. It's pretty bad when you look around and you see how many folks' names are on church rolls and how many folks are in the church house on Sunday. You know, I think that's a key indicator that we've got a lot of Christians who are asleep. Paul says it's time to wake up. And I'll just interject this in there. I think we have a responsibility. If we are Christians who are spiritually awake, I think we have a responsibility to go wake the other ones up. Go shake them a little bit and say, look, you got to get back to church. you gotta get back, You got to get back living the way you know the Lord wants you to live. Paul says it's time to wake up, and it's time to be spiritually alert. But he says there's something else. It's time to do something else. Look at verse 11. Again, he says it's time to, to awake out of sleep. Then he says something else about time. He says now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Now, salvation, as he says, as he uses it here, he's not talking about what, what we are talking about when we say so-and-so got saved tonight. That's not what Paul is talking about. Paul's not talking about that moment in time when the person makes a decision to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Paul is talking about what we would call glorification, Paul's talking about the moment we go to glory, the moment we go to heaven. That's what Paul's talking about. and He says it's closer today than it was. It's closer today. Our going to heaven is closer than when we very first believed. He says in verse 12 that the day is at hand. Look at that. He says the night is far spent. It's almost daytime. It's almost the time that the Lord is coming back. That's what Paul says. It's almost here. And some might say, well, that was 2,000 years ago. Apparently, Paul didn't know what he was talking about. It's been 2,000 years. If the night was almost over and the day is almost here, where has it happened? You know, we, we interpret the Bible by reading the Bible. And so I want us to look. Turn with me. Hold your place here and turn with me over to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. We get a little more context on what Paul would have been thinking by reading Peter. And 2 Peter chapter 3, for context, we'll begin in verse 1. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, Peter writes, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, and both of which... I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come To repentance, Peter says that to God, one day in heaven is is the equivalent of a thousand years on earth. Now, when when Peter wrote that and and when Paul writes his letter to the Romans, you're just in the first few hours of the very first day. You're in the first century. It's been 2,000 years since this was written on earth. According to Peter, it's been two days in heaven. It hadn't been any time. God's not slack concerning his promise. See, God's putting it off. We'll put it off another day or two, maybe. Give a few more time to confess. God doesn't want any to perish, but he wants to give time for all who will to come to repentance. Jesus says he's coming soon. Did you know that? That's what he said. He's in heaven saying, I'm coming soon. And you might say, well, it's been a thousand years. What is soon? To him, it's been two days. But I want you to see, turn just before the book of Concordance in the back of your Bible to Revelation chapter 22, the very end of the book. The very end of the book. I just think it's important that you see it with your own eyes. Don't just listen to me say it. Look at the words in red. Revelation, chapter 22, verse 20. The last few lines of the entire Bible. He who testifies of these things, that's Jesus Christ himself. He who testifies of these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Jesus said, I'm coming quickly. Paul, as he's writing to the Romans, he said, you need to know what time it is. And you need to know that the night is almost over. You need to know that the day is almost here and that Jesus is going to be here soon. And that ought to affect your behavior. That's why he tells them that. Because that ought to affect our behavior. Know the time. The second thing he tells us, dress appropriately dress appropriately. Paul gives us a little spiritual fashion advice, okay? Some of us need it. He gives us some fashion advice as we look at the end of uh, verse 12 in Romans chapter 13. If I get to the right page, he says, therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Here, Paul paints a picture using, in, in the Greek there, military terms. He paints a picture of a soldier who's had a little free time in the evening, and he must have went to town, and he had uh, a lot too much to drink, and he did pretty much whatever he wanted with whomever he wanted, and he's gone back to the barracks, and he's asleep, and the commanding officer comes in the next morning, and he's covered with all of the evidence of what last night had to be. And he says, get cleaned up and put on your war clothes. It's time to go back to battle. As Paul looks at the Roman Christians and he talks to the Roman Christians, he says, some of you need to get rid of that junk you're wearing. Get rid of the junk that's in your life. Get rid of of the thing, the sin that covers you. He says, he says you need to cast it off. Your Bible may say lay it aside. What he means is you need to walk completely away from it. You need to forsake it. And you need to put on your war clothes. Works of darkness encompasses all sin. Paul uses the same phrasing in Colossians chapter 3, verse 8 when he says, But now you yourself are to put off all of these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. In the original language, it would better translate, continue putting off all these. And the same is true in Romans chapter 13, when Paul says, Therefore, let us continually cast off the works of darkness. Cast it off. Get rid of the dirty clothes you're wearing, which is sin. Put on your battle clothes. Because nobody ever promised a Christian life would be easy. It's quite the contrary. The Christian life is war. Spiritual warfare. And I know, I say I know, I believe Tim taught on Ephesians chapter 6. Turn there if you will for me for just a minute. Ephesians chapter 6 a week or so ago about the armor of God. The Apostle Paul addressing pretty much the same thing here. In Ephesians chapter 6 we'll read beginning in verse 10 he says finally my brethren be strong in the lord and in the power of his might put on the whole armor of god that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities against powers against the rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual hosts And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. He says, put on the whole armor of God. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 13, when he says, cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. But he says to put on something else in verse 14. In verse 14, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means that every day we ought to be constantly striving to see that our lives more and more resemble and more and more model that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Will we ever achieve it? No, not this side of heaven. We'll never reach perfection. But you know what you do when you're trying to reach perfection? You keep trying. And you do it again. You have to constantly seek to put on Jesus. Now, I'm talking to the Sunday night crowd. It's like preaching to the choir. But, you know, if you just come to church on Sunday, and that's the only time you try to put on Jesus. We're going to act good today, you know, but then going to go to work tomorrow, and we're going to act like the rest of the guys we work with, you know, talk like the rest of the guys we work with or girls we work with or whatever it may be. And, and we're going to go, and we're going to do what we want to do. But then on Sunday, we're going to put on our best, and we're going to come to church, and we're going to, you know, act like Jesus. Well, that doesn't work. That's not what Paul says to do. You say, well, maybe I'll do it two days a week. I'll come back on Wednesday night. Well, no, that's not what Paul says to do. Not even three or four days a week. It's every single day. He says to constantly be putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to keep on practicing because practice makes perfect. And one day when the Lord comes back and we know he is, and he takes us home, we'll reach that perfection. We've got to know the time. We've got to dress appropriately. And very briefly, there's one final point from verse 13. And it sums up everything we've talked about the last two weeks. We've got to act right. You've got to know the time. You've got to dress appropriately. And he says you've got to act right. In verse 13, he says, Let us walk properly as in the day not in revelry and drunkenness. Not like those folks. Revelry and drunkenness. I mean, it's not it's like party, nightclub. Don't act, don't act like that. Don't, don't go living your life the way the world sees a normal life being lived. Give that up. Walk properly. And he lists a few sins by name there. He says uh, not, not, in drunk, uh, not in revelry and, and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but we know that that's not a complete list of sins to avoid. This is what Paul does all throughout his epistles. He'll he'll talk about sin, and he'll give a little list of avoid these. And you could go, and you could add all those up, and we still wouldn't get a complete list of the sins to avoid. We could go around the room tonight. Everybody, we could go around four or five times, and everybody could name a different sin, and we could probably do it four or five times or even more and nobody ever repeat the same sin that somebody's already said. We could never give an exhaustive list of all the sin we should avoid. And people say, that's what makes it so hard to live a Christian life. I just, there's so much to remember. No. Let's go full circle. Instead of summarizing a complete list of everything to avoid, why don't we just look at the list of how we're supposed to act right? Chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what's good. You see, that's how we live properly. We let love be without hypocrisy. We abhor what is evil. And we cling to what's good. That was a challenge from last week. What a challenge it was! It was a challenging challenge, you could say, Brother John. But guess what? That's the challenge this week. That's the challenge the next week. And it will be our challenge until the day arrives and Jesus comes back. Or he calls us home. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what's good. Is there anything before we go? If not, if you'll stand and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. I'm thankful you came back to church tonight, and as we're uh, dismissed, Brother Tim, would you dismiss us in prayer, please?